Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Just become a serial bugler, man. Just put it in the put it in, <laughs> put it in the in the car and just you know crack the window every now and then and rip a bugle. Same same thing with the turkey call, man. You you throw a couple hand calls out there, you'd surprise what kind of gobbles turkey and non-turkey like you get in response. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kendall. Today, I have a good buddy as a guest, which I'm happy to have on. We got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. I guess today is Jeremy Romero. How you doing, Jeremy? What's going on? Yeah, I'm- I'm doing fine, Aaron. Appreciate you asking me to be on the on the podcast today. Yeah, and Jeremy's had some fun and interesting adventures lately. Maybe we can talk a little bit about those. But first, I'll tell folks a little bit about him. Jeremy is a, a lifelong northern New Mexican from a long lineage of Hispanic culture and, and hunting and fishing family and public land users. And he's really a he's an avid hunter and angler. I've I've gotten the opportunity to fish with Jeremy a time or two and we're always talking hunting and he's always out in the woods. I'm, I'm kind of envious a little bit. He sends me some awesome pictures of his scouting or hunting or whatever he's doing down there. He gets so many opportunities. There's exotic species in New Mexico. It seems like hunting is open year round for something or other. And, and you can guarantee Jeremy's out there figuring it out and chasing animals. So anyway, Jeremy is the regional connectivity coordinator for NWF, uh, excuse me, National Wildlife Federation. I shouldn't use those acronyms, although I figure people know what they are by now. But uh, Jeremy works with all different kinds of partners in the Colorado-New Mexico border area. 
uh, to, to do kind of some transboundary migration initiatives and, and connectivity with wildlife. He works with tribes, sportsmen, all kinds of land users, uh, the agencies, really does some awesome work. He's also taken more of a leadership role at NWF with our connectivity work, some of our other staff, and just working hard to help keep hunting and fishing protected in, in his area there and, and even beyond. So we're lucky to have him, and we'll, we'll talk about some of that. But first, let's get into what Jeremy's been doing outside, and, and we don't have all day, Jeremy. I know you're, you're doing a million things. Just, just give us the cliff notes. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to make it short and sweet, um, but you know, you said it pretty well. New Mexico is a, a state for the most part of a pretty good opportunity when it comes to access to the outdoors and the ability to do things like, like hunting and fishing and other recreation opportunities. So at any given moment, there's, you know, it's a safe thing to say that there's some, something you, you should be doing or can be doing. Um, you know, lately I've been taking advantage of some of our more, um, you know, exotic species to hunt. I had a, a couple friends of mine who drew some some pretty unique tags. As, as as I as myself, I drew a Barbary sheep tag, and I started off kind of my exotic venture with, you know, harvesting a, a Barbary sheep. Other folks know them as as Audad, and then I went from there to helping a, a friend of mine and his wife with a once in a lifetime on range missile oryx hunt. Um, which is a pretty unique opportunity. And then finally, I, I met up with a friend of mine um, to chase some Persian ibex, which is one of the other exotic species in New Mexico. And uh, we were fortunate enough to, to harvest all three of those species. So pretty cool, unique opportunity to be a part of. But that's, that's you know, what's cool about New Mexico is right now, most states across the West have some pretty downtime. And if you're looking at hunting hunting animals or or getting outdoors, you're either fishing or you're hunting small games or pretty selective species. So New Mexico's got a pretty unique uh, landscape where, you know, you can almost hunt 365 days a year. Yeah. And, and that's, that's putting it mildly what he's been doing is we're lucky to get Jeremy in the office once in a while. He's out there all across the landscape doing awesome stuff. We get to talk a lot about it. And I'm always like, man, she's sending me pictures, showing me all this cool stuff. I want to go do that. Well, I got, I got to keep bugging you with pictures. That way you just get, get tired of it and come, come finally join me. Well, we'll be down there. One of the things that we've been working on together is uh, my son's Audad or, or what is the other name for him? I forget. Barbary. Barbary. Yeah. He, barbs. Barbs, people call him. The the Audad hunt my son's going to have starting uh, April 1st. Been talking that up and Jeremy's sending me pictures of critters all over the landscape and getting my boy pretty riled up. Uh, and we're, we're talking some fishing, Jeremy coming up my way for some fishing and, and all kinds of good stuff. But, uh, I've been, we had snowmageddon in Colorado here the other day. I didn't get a huge chunk where I live, but my local ski hill here got two feet. So got out skiing and a nice big powder day on Sunday and been working with my boy on his, uh, his, his new bow and, and it's tag time. We're trying to get our tags set up for hunting season this fall. So been getting out some. I, I also did a backpacking trip with uh, my group of buddies that we've been doing for more than 20 years. I, I like uh, that. Talk, talk a little bit about that more. That's a pretty cool trip. Yeah, we actually went into Bears Ears National Monument, uh, which it's an area I've been visiting for a long time. I didn't even know it, which exact parts of it were Bears Ears. Um, and then, you know, the, these latter years as Bears Ears has been more in the, uh, in the news, for lots of different reasons, I've started to kind of understand that area as Bears Ears, but canyons we were in had lots of awesome 
cliff dwellings and we found, you know, little pieces that had been worked, little rock pieces that had been worked, you know, by our, by Native Americans and folks have lived there for, you know, thousands of years. It was a really cool experience. Uh, nice to see that, that stuff still exists and just fun to spend some time out there. It, re- it really is a place that, you know, when you, when you step foot on that ground, it's like walking back in time. You know, it's just, there's so much cultural significance there. It's, you know, the wildlife is, is amazing in itself, but then just hiking and, you know, and being able to see firsthand the different landscape features, diff, you know, seeing the the cultures and the, and the traditions that were there before you. I mean, man, that place is just littered with so much history, you know, littered probably isn't the best word, but it, it really is right. Like <laughs> yeah. it, there's so much culture and history around that area that it's a, it's really, truly is a pretty special place to get the opportunity to, to venture and explore. Yeah. And I remember you got a Turkey in bears ears. What? It's gotta be four or five years ago now. Yeah. I think it's going on. It'll be five years probably in May, but you know, Utah is one of those unique States where they have a draw opportunity for, for, for big game, you know, turkeys alike. And then they also have some over the counter OTC opportunities. And so I usually, if I don't draw the the general tag, then I try to do the, or the limited tag, excuse me. I try to just pick up the, the general tag and go hunt turkeys in May. But yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to go up there and, and harvest a, a turkey and actually not too far from, you know, the, the bear's ears themselves. Nice. Yeah. If you look around on our NWF sporting website and some of our other materials, you'll, you'll likely come across that photo of Jeremy and his Tom and bear's ears a handful of years ago. Just disregard the big smile from year to year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the best part. Everybody's happy when they get a nice Tom like that. Well, let's jump in a little on some of the stuff we wanted to talk about it. And a lot of it, it's perfect segue in, in one way, because we wanted to just talk some spring action, right? We got, we got turkey hunting coming up. We have uh, shed hunting. People are starting to think about, uh, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about just prepping up for turkey hunting. I know you're always doing all kinds of stuff, helping people get out. One of the things I love about you the most is you're helping somebody get in the field pretty much every time I talk to you. And so I thought it was a cool thing to talk about a little bit because uh, I know you expressed a desire to just, you know, this time of year, it's a good time to take stock, get everything cleaned up, get ready to roll. Uh, spring's coming and uh, gobblers are starting to, to gobble and things are starting to happen. So let's just talk turkey hunting. What do you want to what do you want to share with us today first? Well, you I think you nailed nailed it, you know, the nail on the head there. Spring spring cleaning, right? Like. It's always the time where folks are more or less getting their gear organized, you know, cleaning their shotguns, taking those steps from a pretty, hopefully busy and eventful and, and, uh, hopefully successful, you know, season hunting season prior to that. And, you know, the next opportunity is, is getting out there and, and chasing turkeys. And so, you know, like, like you were saying, I, I, I like to chase turkeys if I'm not thinking about, or if I'm not chasing turkeys, I'm usually thinking about shed hunting or something else. And so, you know, how, how I go about, you know, getting myself ready for, for turkey hunting, there's a few things that I like to, you know, really kind of focus on. And, and hopefully today on this, on this podcast, we can kind of just touch on some of that. And so, you know, one of the main things of turkey hunting is obviously having the right gear, right? And so we'll talk about having the right gear. We'll talk about once you have the right gear, where do you go? Where do you go to find turkeys to, to hunt? 
And then, you know, we can finish it off with once you find those turkeys, how do you, how do you hunt them? How do you turn, you know, finding, scouting, putting in the hard work to get your gear ready to make sure you're, you're putting yourself in the, in the best possible position for success. How do you make sure you call those birds in close so you can put your bead there on a gobbling Tom and make sure you're, you're filling the freezer with some, some fresh wild game Turkey. So if that's cool with you, we'll get right into it. Yeah. And I think the first piece of advice is call Jeremy and he'll help you figure it out. And I got one question for you first. What, what's your Turkey load? And I'll tell you what mine is and why, but, but tell me what you use for shooting turkeys as shotgun. Well, you know, I, I, for the past, you know, four or five years, I've really been, you know, turning and going from lead based shot to non lead based, you know, steel shot and other, other types like bismuth. Um, you know, I do shoot about a, I, I prefer about a three, three inch, you know, anywhere between that, that four and six shot. I, I tend to like, and, you know, bismuth is something that I've been, uh, playing with or, or, you know, interacting with a little bit more. And I've been liking that, but, uh, you know, something that's not going to knock your shoulder off and something that's not, you know, obviously going to be large enough to, to, uh, down a, a gobbling Tom. So I don't like the three and a half loads cause they're just a little bit too big. I don't like the two and three quarters cause they, you know, seem just a little bit small, but those, those three inch, you know, right in that four to six shot seems to be pretty well do, do good for me. Yeah. And I, I have been transitioning the last couple of years to these federal TSS. I can't remember what the TSS stands for, but they're a, they're a mix of a couple of different uh, metals, if you will, not non-lead. Uh, and boy, they are spendy, but hopefully you don't have to use very many of them. Um, but these are in, these are in 20 gauge and in talking to some folks I know at, at federal, you know, they're even lethal on a Turkey in the 410 uh, gauge. Oh, wow. So, you know, they're, they're pretty, incredible i mean some of the stuff you read about these loads we we have yet to pull the trigger with one of these <laughs> we've been out the last couple of years with my boy and we're having a lot of fun uh hanging out on the public land looking at a ton of turkeys on private land and doing a less than stellar job of calling them off the private land onto the public land so maybe we can get take jeremy's advice and and change that this year <laughs> yeah it's it's really good to see you know companies like federal and others taking those steps to really start, you know, implementing and, and prioritizing the use of non-lead products, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, turkey hunting is such a great opportunity, like you're saying, to get youth outdoors and really giving them that opportunity to start to instill and teach youth and, and other new hunters the importance of using non-lead is, you know, it's a, it's a perfect opportunity to do that. The great thing about these is um, it's all performance-based, right? I mean, these are just better than any other kind of load. And that's why they're so spendy, but, uh, they, they, their performance and some of the stuff you read about them, the knockdown power at even like 60 yards is so amazing. So it's good. The, the efficacy of the round itself will probably convert a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and I'll be honest with you, you know, hunting, hunting turkeys with a shotgun has been fairly new for me. You know, I, I was the kind of person who chased every animal possible with my, with my bow. Um, you know, I love you know, pretty diehard archer and, uh, any opportunity I can to, to chase, chase anything I do. And so for the last, you know, couple of years, I've been, I put down the bow and been chasing turkeys with, with a shotgun, but, uh, you know, there's, there's an opportunity and there's, there's a way you can get it done with, with a bow. It's, it's a lot more difficult. It takes a lot more patience and, 
and being, you know, ninja-like and sneaky, but uh, it can be done. And it's been kicking my butt the last few years. So I, I <laughs> defaulted to the shotgun, but it's a, it's a pretty cool opportunity, you know, and pretty neat to chase, chase turkeys with, with a bow. I usually have another person with me and, and I'll, you know, try my attempt with, with an arrow. And if I fail, then it's usually a follow-up with my buddy on, on the shotgun, just to tell me that you should have been carrying a shotgun the whole time. But uh, I'll, I'll keep trying with my bow, and sooner or later I'll get it done. What's the turkey situation in New Mexico? I, I mean, I gotta imagine they're they're growing fast, the populations, and and doing pretty well. It's some of the best kind of habitat you can imagine. Yeah, it's you know we got really good habitat, but like all places, you know, it's indicative of the climate around it. So any you know given years, we can have with with less drought and more snowpack and and a good monsoon, you know early season in the spring, we can have a lot of water and have a lot of forage for, for turkeys. Those years you can really find them and, and numbers are, are pretty well. Um, you know, there's other years where we just don't have a lot of water. Don't get those dandelions. We don't get, you know, acorns. And because of that, those turkey populations also, also can take a hit. But, uh, you know, New Mexico is a unique state where we have, you know, three different species of turkeys. We got Miriams, we got Rio Grands, and we got Golds. Um, you can hunt Rios and, and Miriams, those are probably the most commonly found turkey species in New Mexico. And then right along the, the Arizona, Mexico, New Mexico border, you can find the Gold's turkeys. And those are uh, very limited hunting opportunities. I think there's probably just a couple tags that folks get via a raffle drying or something. Um, but uh, it's it's really cool. You know, the state's taken some considerable um, leaps and bounds to invest a significant amount of resources into getting that population back and, and, and upcoming and, and hopefully, you know, there'll be more hunting opportunities, but you know, there's, I don't think there's many other States where you get, you know, three species like that. I think one of the only ones we're missing is the Osceola there found in, in Florida. Yeah. Well, New Mexico might bring a few of those over just cause that's what they like to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's for I sure. I was just looking at, uh, I, I'm thinking about spring break with my family and uh, we were like to go South down in the desert, you know, and, I was actually just looking at uh, Kirikawa National Monument, and they were talking about having gold's turkeys down there. And I was like, "Wow, I've never seen where those are." Definitely. So, oh, that's Arizona, right? Sure. Yeah, it's right that's on like the border, though. Like what you were just Patagonia saying. area. It's way. It's, it's a little bit more east. It's like right on the border of New Mexico and Arizona, right down there by the Boot Hill, and you know, really approaching the Mexico border too. Um, and so that that was cool to see. We like. We like checking out all the cool birds that cruise through, especially this time of year, migrating up in any of those wet spots down in that area. You see amazing birds. Yeah, most people don't think of desert, arid, dry landscapes with thorns and cactuses to be good turkey habitat, but man, can it make some exceptional habitat for turkeys and other avian species alike, right? You got merns, Montezuma quail down there. You know, you get a lot, like you're saying, a lot of a lot of migratory pathways for, for waterfowl and other migratory birds. So they're, they're mm -hmm. really unique areas. Yeah. I saw my first, uh, my first and only vermilion flycatcher, uh, <laughs> down there by, by, in that country, that's, uh, by Patagonia. So funny. Like yeah. That's so funny. You bring that up yesterday. I had a, a buddy of mine I was on the phone with and he's, we're, we're talking and he just middle of conversation stops. Like, you should see this bird outside my window right now for like 10 minutes. He was trying to take this, this picture, you know, and he kept telling me like, it's, 
it's brilliant. It's vibrantly red and orange and, and it just keeps going up from this tree down to the ground, up to this tree, down to the ground. I can't get a picture. And so as he's telling me that, I'm thinking to myself, like up from the tree, down to the ground, back and forth, like that sounds like a flycatcher. And he sends me the picture. Sure, sure enough, it's a vermilion flycatcher. So I felt pretty cool that I knew that species and I can shoot him a text back right away and say, yeah, that's a vermilion flycatcher. Nice. If, if folks ever get a chance to see these things, they're just so phenomenal. They're like bursting bright red with a little bit of an orange hue too. And just amazing birds. I mean, you see them flash through the, through the woods and you're like, whoa, whoa, what was that? It was red flash, you know, and they just really eye catching. So check those out. Let's, let's jump into the turkey hunting piece and we'll, we'll try to transfer over to the shed hunting. Cause Jeremy's also a prolific shed hunter. You should see the, the piles of sheds Jeremy has lined up down there. Uh, and turkey hunting and shed hunting can often go hand in hand, which is even better. So let's talk about turkey. So let's just take it from a 101. You know, new people trying to get involved with turkey hunting, get, gearing up. What should they be thinking about right now? Yeah, you know, the the hard part with anything hunting is getting, you know, your feet wet and understanding kind of the 101, the basics and, you know, but there's somewhat of a lot to it, but once you get it, there's really nothing to it. And it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, you know, turkey hunting is unique because it's like, not like other big game species. You don't essentially need a lot of gear, right? You're not backpacking. You can, you're not backpacking into the wilderness. You're not doing these, you know, five day long hunts. You know, a lot of this can be camp, you know, centralized or oriented. And, and because of that, you can um, tend to have a little bit more uh, gear or things that are, are a little bit more accommodating than you would per se, you know, trying to save weight and hike into the back country to hunt Turkey completely doable. And we can talk about that, but we'll mostly talk about what, uh, you know, what your, what your first time hunter may, may experience or, or want to learn by getting into the Turkey woods. And so the first thing is understanding and, and learning how to use a firearm, um, picking and choosing which, which firearm or a bow that you want to choose um, and then making sure that you spend and invest an adequate amount of time prior to turkey season, you know, spending time at the range, learning about the, the safety and the use and, the, and the, the mechanisms of that firearm, getting comfortable with it. The last thing you want to be doing is calling a buddy up the day before turkey season and asking him if you can borrow his shotgun and never using a shotgun before taking it out to the woods and, and hoping to, to get a turkey. You know, there's there's a lot that goes set into preparation and making sure you're being an ethical steward of the land. And part of that is making sure you're investing the time to, to know your tools and know how they work. And part of that is investing that time into a shotgun. So, you know, you and I talked about kind of what that ideal load is. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll take it a step farther. When we're looking at shotguns, there's really two main gauges that I like to, you know, recommend to people or utilize myself. And that's a, you know, a 20 gauge and a 12 gauge, you know, 12 gauge is going to be a larger, a larger shot shell. It's going to kick a little, little harder and it's going to pack a little bit more of a punch for people that are a little bit more, um, not as new. Um, they may have a little bit more time invested and experience in the woods and, and using a firearm, A, a 12 gauge might be, something that they want to look in, right? 12 gauges are nice because they're versatile. You can use them for other other species than, than turkey. You know, same with the 20 gauge. The 20 gauge is a little bit of a smaller shot shell. This is something I highly recommend for first-time hunters. 
um, you know, uh, youth, first time hunters, anybody who's really not had the time or experience with a lot of firearms, a 20 gauge will most certainly get the job done on a turkey. And it also provides, I think, uh, not as much recoil and not as much bang as, as, a, as a 12 gauge. And so a little bit more forgiving for folks. And, you know, it really, I think, I think it has its place in, in the turkey woods. And so once, once you figure out, you know, what, what tool or what firearm you're going to use, then, you know, you start to kind of ask the question of what, what other gear do I need? Um, you know, in the turkey woods, you're going to be doing a lot of sitting. And I mean a lot of sitting and sitting still, you know, any movements, bad movement and turkey have phenomenal eyesight. They'll, they will pick you off as you're trying to pick your nose from a mile away. Don't even try it. <laughs> and you got to remember turkey are, are birds, man. Birds see really well, especially those, those big old prey birds like that. Definitely got gifted with really good eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. So, you know, start asking yourself from, from that gear perspective, what, what am I going to need? And, you know, you're going to need some really good camouflage, right? You know, it's being, being fully camoed and having the ability to be patient and sit still is going to be your biggest friend in the turkey now woods. Now I know why I haven't gotten a turkey. <laughs> well, you, you can't be wearing your white painting pants and, and white t-shirt when you're out there. So that's, we'll fix that first. And, and now you might be in a better spot this year. <laughs> But uh, so, you know, focusing on the camo, getting, make, making sure you have, you know, gear to, to be fully concealed for the most part, um, you know, having a shotgun. Another good thing is a good backpack, you know, having a good backpack where you can spend the whole day out in the turkey woods, you know, you're going to be doing a lot of stands. Um, you know, what I like to do when I set up a turkey stand is I, is I like to find a tree and I like to set my back up against it. And I like to prop my firearm in a position that I know is going to require the least amount of movement. If a turkey comes in, if I have my firearm laying on the ground and a turkey comes in, it's going to see that movement as I try to shoulder that firearm and put the bead on the turkey. And most likely it's not going to amount to me harvesting a turkey. It's going to amount to that turkey seeing me swiveling and running away. Um, and so, you know, having a good backpack and a good kind of, you see these turkey vests that have seats on the bottom of the vest. And, you know, it looks kind of funny with a guy running around the turkey woods with a, with a seat hanging off, you know, his backside on a vest, but, you know, take, take it from someone who's been turkey hunting a long time, having a good seat and having something that, you know, provides a little cushion as you're sitting there for, for hours on hours is important. So think about a good cushion. Um, you know, and obviously with, with that being said, you're going to be spending the whole day, hate day hunting turkeys, um, hopefully in different scenarios and you're going to need, you know, snacks, water, all that good stuff. Right. So some of the typical things you would, you would find in, in everyday big game hunts, but a few, a few twists. Right. Um, and obviously, right. We want to make sure you have your tags and licenses. That's, that's one of the main things. Make sure you got that in your bag as you're hunting. But, uh, you know, those, those really are the, the essentials, you know, having some good insulation, you know, mornings as you're hunting Turkey. And as we continue, we'll get into the different hunting scenarios that you're looking for, but, uh, you know, having good insulation mornings are really cold, you know, days can warm up. And at the same time, evenings can get cold too. So making sure you have the right, the right gear to, to dress and, and, and do so accordingly is always makes turkey hunting a little bit more bearable. You know, you hear folks who have bad experiences, turkey hunting, and it's usually because 
you know, they either weren't prepared, you know, didn't invest time in learning about their firearm and had, you know, a missed opportunity or something like that, and just didn't really invest the time or preparing. And if you do that, it's going to make, you know, your time spending out in the woods, whether it's chasing turkeys or other big game, much more, much more enjoyable. And you're going to be able to adapt to, you know, different scenarios. For sure. What about how, how do you, I mean, how do you go about kind of saying, here's how I'm going to approach this chunk of the turkey woods because that's you know i think we all know they need some water you know they like they like a good spot to roost in often you know in the in the west at least if you're talking about public private the private is usually the spots that have those wetted you know streams and creeks and so on so maybe let's talk a little bit about kind of the tactic for a public land hunter what they might do in that situation yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. And it's, there's, it's, it's open-ended in, in, in some ways, and we'll get to that. You know, I think what's, what's unique about finding turkeys and, and having a successful hunt is, you know, what you do leading up to that. And, you know, doing a lot of scouting and investing time to find turkeys is, is really important to making sure you have, have a successful hunt down the road down the road. And so how do we, how do we scout turkeys? How do we find turkeys to hunt the opening morning? Well, one of the first things I do is I spend a significant amount of time, you know, driving and looking in areas where I've seen turkeys in the winter, because right now, you know, like you're saying, turkeys need, they need feed, they need water. And a lot of the higher country, that's, you're not going to find that right now. You're going to find a lot of snowpack. You're going to find, you know, not a lot of forage and feed. Most water is going to be frozen over. Not ideal turkey habitat at, at the moment. And, and like other big game species, turkeys will move, you know, seasonally to other areas to, you know, overwinter per se. And so where you find these turkeys overwintering, there's a good chance you're going to find these turkeys in the springtime as they start to, you know, eat the new green up, as they start to get a little bit more active in their mating season, as they start to follow these lower elevations to higher elevations, that green wave, where, you know, you can end up finally hunting them in in some higher elevations, some of that mixed conifer stuff. But uh, what I do is I more or less will drive around areas that I do know, and I will try to locate turkeys. Um, And you can locate turkeys a, a number of ways, right? So the main thing to understand is, and, and you pointed out early, is turkeys like to roost. And that's where they will most likely spend their nights every every evening. And that's where they will wake up and start their mornings is by their roost. And so if you can identify where turkeys are roosting, so if you're starting your day scouting in the morning and you're seeing turkeys walking, you know, walking to a certain area, they're most likely coming from their roost. So they start in the morning you know, turkeys will fly, stretch their wings, fly off their roost and immediately start, start feeding. And they like to, turkeys like to feed to a certain area for the most part, and then turn around and work back to their roost. And so if you're in the morning, you know, if you're scouting in the morning and you're seeing birds, usually they're coming from their roost. And so you can, you can really start to identify, here's a good, here's a good morning spot where I've identified a turkey roost and I can position myself seeing, hear are the birds where they're coming from the roost. If you can find that roost, it's pretty easy. You can find most likely a ponderosa that's got, you know, ample branches that turkeys are flying up to, um, you know, roosting in. You'll find a lot of, you know, turkey poop on the bottom. 
And that's really a good indicator that I found that roost. And then you can see where those birds are flying off of, right? Which direction they're coming off of that, that roost. And then you start to position yourself, you know, accordingly on path with that, with that flight path that they're coming off the roost, hoping that as they come off their roost, you're going to be sitting there waiting for them and, and have your opportunity and the inverse, right? So in the evening, if you're scouting and you're seeing birds moving, most likely they're moving to their roost. And so what I like to do in the evenings a lot is I will actually use that as an opportunity to scout, learn where those birds are moving to their roost, find out where that roost is, and then come the next morning and hunt them off that roost. I find turkeys are a little bit more active in the morning, especially to, to the calls. Um, you know, quickly they're trying to trying to hen up is the term. Um, toms are trying to hen up and find their little little flocks so that they can, you know, mate and, and do their, their tom things. And uh, at the end of the day, if you can find those two places, you're going to be in a really good spot come opening day turkeys because you're going to know where turkeys are coming from and you're going to know where turkeys are going. And that's really the main, main important key. Um, and, you know, finding those areas, you know, you're going to look at that wintering wintering range habitat. Where is their current feed right now? You know, one of the big things that you'll see turkeys feeding on are acorns. If you can find some pretty good, you know, acorn stands in the West where you have a lot of, you know, acorns produced from that, that, that past season that are falling on the ground. Um, if you also have areas that get a lot of dandelions, you know, turkeys love dandelions. They love those bugs. And those usually turn out to be pretty unique turkey areas right um and that's just the yeah, scouting gamble piece. oak country in the in the west here where the gambles oak are they drop those acorns i don't i don't we don't have very many oaks and there's maybe a couple others way down south uh arizona new mexico that are specialized kind of oaks but i don't, I don't yeah, think I, there's any of that kind if i don't find oak that's producing acorn or areas that have some sort of dandelion or even bug life for that matter, I'll move until I find one of those three, right? Like that's usually what I'm finding turkeys feeding on. They're feeding on insects, they're feeding on dandelions, and they're feeding on acorns. And if I don't find any of those three, I'm usually moving until I can find at least one of those three factors. And if you get all three of them, you're going to be in some really good turkey habitat from, from my experience. Um, and that's just locating have good turkey habitat, right? And once you find turkeys in that habitat, like that's how you can go about, um, that's how you really can go about planning your stocks or your approaches to, to be successful. And then there's the whole calling piece, right? Like turkeys are very vocal animals. I think there's over like close to 20 known, you know, vocalizations that turkey make, you know, of those we probably, you know, hunt sportsmen and sportswomen probably only mimic a few of them, but there, there's a few calls that you could use to really increase your, your chances and your odds to, to having a successful turkey hunt. And one of those can be done to help find turkeys initially, right? We call it a locator call and turkeys, you know, turkeys respond to loud, especially toms, they can respond to loud shot calls for, you know, is what we call it, a shot call or, or a locator call. And you'll hear that most commonly two things. You'll hear it as an owl or you'll hear it as a crow call. And in, in the mornings and in the evenings, those tend to be the more prominent noise that other birds or, you know, species are, are making. You'll hear crows in the morning, you'll hear owls in the evening and at night. And turkeys will respond to that. And they will do so not in a way of recognizing that there's other turkeys there, but in a way of responding to that call. So 
when you're out in the turkey woods, the first thing I usually do if I don't already know where turkeys are roosting is I, as I throw a crow call out there or I throw this locator call out there. It's just like a really shock call, loud, prominent call that just echoes and vibrates through the, you know, the quiet morning, crisp, you know, the crisp woods. And, and what it does is it just sets those birds off. And a lot, you know, a lot of times if there's a gobbler around there, he will respond and he will gobble to that locator call. And it gives you a good idea of where he's at, where do I need to get to be able to set up a, you know, a stand and hopefully draw that, that turkey in. Um, so once we've, you know, established where turkeys are staying, where they're living, where some good hunting habitat is, you know, once we have all of our gear and we know, you know, what we need to hopefully get the job done, you know, we go to setting up a stand. And so when we're, when we're setting up that stand to hunt a turkey, we've, you know, essentially checked some of those factors off the list. We know where they're at. We have the right gear to hopefully get the job done. How do we get those turkeys into us? And so, you know, I talk about setting up a stand and knowing where those turkeys are coming off the roost. You know, if you can get in between that, if you can get there when it's dark in the morning to where you know those turkeys are coming off the roost, you know, set yourself up against a tree, be very still and start some calling, right? A lot of what happens and a lot of things that sportsmen and sportswomen overlook is is the calling component and you know invest it's like a shotgun if you're gonna pick up a call the day before the hunt it's gonna be real difficult and your chances of actually calling in a turkey could happen don't get me wrong but it's gonna be very difficult so you know there's really three types of calls that that uh, the turkey hunters use that's a, a diaphragm call you know folks have seen it like a elk call goes in the mouth there's also a box call and there's a slate call, right? You'll see the box call have chalk in it. Folks just kind of screech it. And then the slate call is a slate with a, with a stick in it for the most part. And people are chirping at the, at the slate and making turkey-like noises. I like to use a box call and I like to use a diaphragm call. The reason I like to use a diaphragm call is I can, use, I can do it in my mouth without minimal, minimal movement, right? And I can have one gun or one hand ready on the shotgun continuously at the same time making calls and hoping that I can lure in that bird and then be in a ready shoot position to where I don't get busted from that bird when, when the opportunity presents itself. Um, and so, you know, taking the time to invest in those calls and know which ones are, are, are good, not necessarily good, but which ones are effective in your own terms, which ones you're really good at are going to be, are going to be critical. I've got all three and I'm not good at any. How's that? How's that? stack up <laughs> well, you, you should be you should be practicing it right now as we're talking on this podcast man you got to be chirp, chirping that thing in the car be chirping that thing it's a it take it to elk season i i i invest a lot of time in calling elk and there's many days where i'm driving down the road with a with a bugle in my hand blowing blowing the bugle in the truck or doing it outside as people are working construction everyone needs a bugle now and then you know <laughs> but uh you got to find those times of practice man yeah, you know, you know when you hear a bugle, and it's, especially when it's not like out in the woods, it always gets everybody smiling and go, "Oh, what the heck's that?" You know, that's a, you're right. Maybe we should just bugle more often. Just period. Just be just a good become idea. A, just become a serial <laughs> bugler, man. Just put it a in the put it in, <laughs> put it in the in the car and just you know crack the window every now and then and rip a bugle. Same <laughs> same thing with the turkey call, man. You you throw a couple hand calls out there, you'd surprise what kind of 
gobbles turkey and non-turkey like you get in response. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit too about the shed hunting aspect of it. I know you're a prolific shed hunter and when you're out there turkey and I know you got your binos and you're looking on the hillsides and doing all the stuff. And, you know, I think most states now have, or a lot of them are moving to shed hunting season, which almost, I, I think in Colorado, it's, it's, if it's not the same day, it's, it's dang close. I know our turkey season's usually second weekend of April in the spring, and you're not allowed to hunt sheds until April 15th. So it makes a lot of sense that they would coincide. You do, you do a good deal of both at the same time. What are your tactics while you're out there turkey hunting, trying to shed hunt? Well, that's, that's funny you bring that up and ask that. It's because I really got into shed hunting by turkey hunting, right? So I would go out there and I'd, I'd find sheds because I was turkey hunting. And then I would end up picking up a lot of sheds and not turkey hunting. And so I've learned to essentially split the two for the most part. You know, there's there's places where I will turkey hunt and shed hunt at the same time but for the most part i try to i try to you know separate the two just because the hope is is you're going to come out with a heavy pack full of 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 antlers and and uh that's not going to provide much room for carrying a shotgun and carrying out a turkey but at the same time you know on the inverse you can be carrying out a turkey versus a pack full of sheds and so i'll try to pick and choose i have done both at the same time and packs can get pretty heavy when you're carrying out a, a load full of sheds and a turkey on your back with with a shotgun it's doable but uh you know i, I oh come I on i don't want to hear that that's the spoils <laughs> <laughs> i but, got too many great things on my back oh, my pack's heavy <laughs> that's funny come, come hang out you, <laughs> you gotta got, take you it. got the stand you got the standing offer well i'll be happy to load a turkey on your back with some sheds <laughs> we'll, we'll be over soon but you know, you you brought up a really interesting point, and that's that you can do both of these activities essentially at the same time, right? Um, and in doing so, you're you're doing it at a time that really you know is important to the work I do around connectivity and migration corridors, right? Um, you hear winter range, you hear winter habitat, and so when you're shed hunting, that's that's what you're looking for, and when you're hunting for turkeys, you're essentially hunting turkeys in big game wintering range habitat, right? And so states like New Mexico that don't have shed shed closures or shed hunting season dates, um, you know, you can you can go out and, and do it at all, shed hunt and hike around looking for last year's antlers whenever. Um, places like Colorado, I think even Utah, um, Wyoming, they all have shed seasons and it's, it's for a really good reason, right? Like, um, as animals are utilizing these landscapes, you know, they, they need to be essentially undisturbed. And so as shed hunters, the first thing we're doing is we're, you know, we're putting boots and putting miles on our boots in this country that can have, you know, essentially negative effects on wildlife. But and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into, you know, more or less the depths of shed hunting. But shed hunting is one of my favorite things to do, right? I mean, it's one of the things where every year, you know, given that that animal's not harvested, a buck or a bull is going to drop its drop its antlers. And they do it in, you know, essentially their, their winter range. And so when you're looking for areas to start to learn, to shed hunt or areas to potentially look like sure as you're hiking around you'll pick up a shed here and there and you know 
that very well could be winter range. But when you start to really think about how to be an effective shed hunter, you start to look at where am I going to find the most animals, preferably bucks and, and bulls, and where are they going to be dropping those antlers? And they're, they're doing it in their, in their winter range. So, you know, every year animals will summer in their summer range where they eat a lot of forage and vegetation and build up a lot of energy reserves for things like mating season. So for, for elk and deer, you'll hear commonly common terms like the rut, right? So deer and elk will get really fat and they'll get a lot of energy and muscle and they'll, you know, utilize that for the rut. But then at the same time, you know, bucks and bulls will also ensure that or take the steps to make sure that they have the right amount of vegetation and nutrition and energy reserves to survive a winter, right? We know winters in some places, especially the West can be exceptionally hard on, on everything, especially wildlife. And so animals try to do a really good job of creating these reserves prior to migrating but at the same time they want to spend their winter they want to spend their the end of the season per se in an area that has ample food ample coverage ample water places that they don't have to already the fact that they're in very limited areas have to invest a lot of resources to get it and that's that's where you'll find sheds that's where you'll find a lot of sheds is you know a lot of these species before they migrate back and follow that green wave to their summer range which is usually high elevation you know forests mountainous areas they will they will utilize that lower area to to feed to survive and shed their antlers no big bull elk or big mule deer buck that's you know that, that knows the game of shedding its antlers and, and knows the routine is going to want to walk all the way back from its winter range to its summer range with a, you know, 15, 20 pound set of antlers on its head when it can just drop them down there in the, in the winter range. And that's been a lot of my experiences, you know, I'll find, I invest a lot of time in finding those elk now in the winter. And then I sit on them, right? Like you don't want to push those animals around because they're there for a reason. They're utilizing that landscape for the feed, for the water, for the cover. And if you start bumping them around, there's a really good chance that you're going to bump them and push them to areas that are less favorable. And then in turn provide, you know, less forage, less feed, less water. It can have some pretty serious consequences or, or long-term effects on, on that particular animal or species. Yeah. One of my analogies is the gas tank, right? Like they, like in the spring, their gas tank's pretty empty. And then the summer, the forage comes on all the green up and they fill up and they're growing their antlers and they're filling up their gas tank. And, you know, then they go into the rut for the bulls and the bucks and they start depleting their gas tank a little. And the winter hits and it's just drawing it down, drawing it down. And by this time of year, March, April, their gas tank's getting critically low, right? And when you go out there and you move them around, you might be asking them to use gas they don't have. Yeah, these animals, they don't have that reserve tank, right? That you can't yeah. just switch it to the reserve tank for them. Yeah, and so like you said, in places like New Mexico, particularly where there's not a season, it's kind of self-governance for the sporting community, right? Folks who like going out and getting antlers have to really govern themselves and, and make sure that the activity is not doing damage and being detrimental to the critters. And, you know, beyond just elk and deer it's it's the tough time for pretty much everything that lives out there it's the very last of the you know hanging on they have to do for the winter before they get all that green up in the summer so it's a good time to be sensitive and careful and take it easy and and you know not not do a lot of stomping around through the middle of that country uh you know so 
just be careful and, and monitor it too, right? Some, some years are a lot harsher than others. If you, you know, I know over near me, Gunnison is, is a crazy place that sometimes has these winters that are just unreal. And you'll you'll drive down highway 50 and there'll be thousands of deer and elk just right near the highway uh, in these big years. And those are the years you can tell it's damn obvious. Don't, don't be pushing them around then. Then other years, there won't be any snow right by the highway, you know, and, and it'll be far back before the snow is there. And you can kind of tell, well, maybe I can drive up in there and glass around a little bit more. And, you know, uh, we have a season now, so it's restricted, but boy, the, the shed hunting has become, I don't know, just in my lifetime, when I used to live in Gunnison, nobody did it. You know, in the in the late nineties, early two thousands, you just there was no seasons. People would just go out casually. Now on the first day, there's like hundreds of cars lined up on the highway and they flood into that country on that first day. And I, I don't know what the deal is. I don't know if it just got popular or what, but it's a different scene. Yeah, it's it's really gotten popular, you know, over the past few years. Like you said, growing up I we had shed hunt because that's just, it was something to do and we'd stumble upon them. We were, you know, in really good country that had sheds and, you know, that was just something we did. It wasn't like a season, right? It wasn't like factoring that in the same category as having a archery elk hunt and investing those times and resources in a harvesting an elk as you do to find sheds these days. And it's become, it's become very popular. And because of that, like you said, we have hundreds of more people if not thousands you know just work in the hills looking for sheds and that's that's not a bad thing right like what's what's unique about sheds is it's it's as long as that animal is still alive and still healthy it's gonna it's gonna shed every year right so it's it's there's opportunity to to find sheds um but with that many people like you said there's just also a really big opportunity to have some negative impacts on on wildlife and their habitat and you've seen states take closures you've seen states well have season dates but then at the same time institute closures and you've also seen states that don't have closures but also have things like education certificates right i think one of the one of the main things that sportsmen and sportswomen can do to be more proactive and, and better stewards of the land and the resource is continue to be educated and, you know, first and foremost, realizing that even though we spend a lot of time out on the landscape, we're by no means experts of, of, of wildlife and, and wildlife biology and how our presence on the landscape can be negative or positively impacting those species. And so we've seen states like Utah that has a closure date and a season date, or excuse me, the ability to enact a closure. They have things like a certificate, right? So you have to actually take a, a course to teach you about the importance of shed hunting, right? So you learn as a sportsman, you know, factoring in all these considerations of a harsh winter, no feed, little water, I shouldn't be out here pushing animals or, you know, the proper, you know, conditions to make, to make it much more um, beneficial or, or able for that species to survive and give you the opportunity to go in there and, and find sheds. And so, you know, looking, you know, shed hunting and turkey hunting in particular are unique because they really happen at a time when wildlife are utilizing the landscapes for survival, right? 
um, especially our, our big ungulates. And so shed hunting in particular, like there's a lot of freedom and flexibility in being able to do so, but I would encourage sportsmen and women to, you know, take it upon themselves to learn about those issues, those impacts, especially in their areas. Um, but also, you know, ensure and educate folks to know that just because there's a lot of sheds out there doesn't mean we go pick them up right now, especially when these animals are, are utilizing these landscapes. And you'll, you'll still see that in places where there are closures, right? Like it's such a competitive nature and competitive business that people will go out there, they'll hike, they'll find sheds, and then they'll leave them there hoping that a week from today when the, when the season opens, they're going to still be there and they're going to go pick up these sheds. Like, sure, you're following the law, but, you know, you're also on the ground and you're also impacting wildlife that need to utilize that landscape. So I get it's a competitive business. I get there's a lot of attention behind it right now, but you know, I think the best thing sportsmen and sportswomen can do is lead by example. And if we're going to lead by example, we need to take the proper steps to educate ourselves, um, identify and understand those, those potential hazards or implications that can negatively affect wildlife. You know, us hiking, looking just to load up a backpack full of sheds, isn't, I think, worth losing those species and not having the ability to either hunt and harvest them or later on down the road, find those sheds again. Right. And I think it's worth yeah. taking those steps. I think I'm starting to become a proponent in high use areas for some sort of license or permit or something, you know, maybe five bucks or something that, that the, the agencies can use to help manage it because the use has exploded. So, so much, it's pretty crazy. And so I guess the, you know, the first thing is just, just pay attention, be careful, learn the area, learn, learn what the conditions are like. And then after that, you know, what, what are you, what are you doing, Jeremy, for as far as like strategies, you know, to find sheds and so you what's know, you, get through that's some a good that question, country, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, it can be a tough question sometimes. So, you know, you first and foremost need to be a couple of things. You got to find that winter range. And once you find that winter range, you need to be aware of how winter conditions can affect that winter range, right? So what I like to do is I find an area where I know elk are wintering. And a lot of times I will do that a lot, you know, prior to shed season. So November, December, when elk are moving away from, from the rut, you know, them, them big bulls are usually working to their winter range. And so I will spend the time and invest a lot of time to do my homework and learn where those, where those animals are, are wintering. Once I do that and I find more or less the general location they're spending their winters, then I start to invest time and I start to look at things like seasonal weather patterns. If we're getting a lot of snow, where are these animals going to be located? Um, you know, north shady slopes tend to hold a lot more snow than south facing sunny slopes and you know because of that those south facing sunny slopes that have less snow are going to have a lot more feet and so i will focus my attention sometimes in winter range on those south southern facing slopes and in years where you have a lot of snow places like that can be key um, in years where you have little snow you know winter range is going to be a lot more usable and therefore those animals are going to be a lot more spread out and so you know investing that time prior to the shed season opener or prior to, you know, really getting your boots on the ground. I like to go to these areas and spend a lot of time behind glass, right? Like you can, you can effectively scout by not walking those miles, by letting your eyes do it for you. And you can 
not disturb wildlife once you find them by by glassing right like it's a pretty safe practice to glass from the road into some really deep country and find elk and do that for multiple days right i think one of the one of the one of the greatest kind of rules of thumb that i you know practice shed hunting by is if i find elk i will not go in there or disturb the area until i at least see all of those bulls shed and by the time all of those bulls have shed, it's usually May, late April, and they're already starting to work back to their to their summer range. And so I feel like as a as a shed hunter, I'm I've taken the appropriate steps to ensure I'm not disturbing those animals in the time they need it. And I'm ensuring that they're also starting to move away. So not only do they drop, but you'll I'll start to see a lot of those bulls moving out of that country. And that's a pretty good sign to me that they're starting to essentially follow that green wave back to their summer range. And I feel confident as a, as a shed hunter, I'm not going to go in there and, and bust animals. And if you do it, hopefully it's at a time where, you know, the landscape can, can, can provide for them. And they're not in a, in a time where you're going to bump them to an area where it's going to be real detrimental to their existence or, or survival. So those are probably the, the big main tips is having good glass, you know, finding that winter range, using those kind of sunnier sides to, to, to glass and find those animals. But you find those animals now, you're going to find their sheds there. Um, and investing in a lot of time behind a good pair of binoculars to pick apart that country, you know, it's essentially finding a needle in a haystack. But once you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's obvious. Why haven't I been seeing these all the time? So they're, they're out there, put in, put in the time and the work and, you know, be, be a steward and be a, a conscious, mindful sportsman and sportswoman as you're out there and, you know, have fun, get on, you know, get after it this year, find some turkeys, find some sheds, but now, you know, you're a little bit more educated. So do so accordingly. <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's a good time to get out. It's spring is in the air, right? It's crisp. It's, it's awesome. It's green starting to happen it just has a good feeling um well we'd be remiss jeremy i mean we've we've talked about this and we could keep talking about it but we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on your work and just the importance of migration and wildlife corridors and connectivity and kind of what the you know what the latest and greatest is we have a new administration and some of the things we saw uh, in, the, in the last administration, we're related to migration corridors, and a lot of folks kind of want to know, you know, what are we doing now? Um, we had what we all know as the Secretarial Order 3362, and it was a big game migration order um, from from the Department of Interior, Secretary Bernhardt at the time. And basically, it was, it was protecting, I, I don't know, maybe protecting is the wrong word, maybe shined a, a magnifying glass on on the way these animals move and their winter range and what they need to carry out their life cycle um, and kind of prescribed, uh, you know, thinking about that uh, as you're doing things like resource management planning, uh, forest planning, those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, since it's an administrative thing, right, it was just a directive. Every time the administration changes, there's the opportunity to continue it, drop it, you know, figure out what's going to happen next. So, Let's jump in a little bit to what what we're looking at now, um, and and where that lies, and and in your work, the interface between those. You know, you, you said it perfectly. I think there's it's a pretty exciting time, 
right? I think with the new administration, um, with an administration that is focused on our natural resources and the protection of such, um, it really gives us um, an opportunity to focus our attention on things like corridors and connectivity. Um, and to, you know, to touch on uh, past efforts and work from previous administrations, you know, the previous administration, as you said, did institute Secretarial Order 3362, which has been a significant resource and tool or initiative per se to, to help better understand and better develop, you know, on the ground practices and opportunities to better manage and prioritize landscape connectivity and wildlife migrations, especially for big game species in Western states, right? That's really what 3362 focused on. Um, but, you know, my work is, is just that, right? Is how do we continue to um, enhance, promote, and maintain wildlife connectivity and, and migration corridors? And how do we do so in a way that also protects, you know, our right as sportsmen and sportswomen to be able to continue to hunt? And how do we continue to hunt and make sure that wildlife are still, you know, existing on this landscape in a way that allows us to to manage them and 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 hunt for these different species and so you know a lot of my work is bringing folks together you know as as we know wildlife no no boundaries per se and so when wildlife move from you know private lands to tribal lands to public lands you know we need to make sure that all of these individuals are are working together to have you know, common best management practices to have, you know, transparency as they communicate to work together to manage for the habitat and the species alike. Um, and that's, it's a big, it's a big lift. It's a big ask and, and it's, it can be difficult in times, but when you get collaboration and, and buy-in from pretty diverse groups of, of people from, you know, tribes, private landowners, state and federal agencies, and the NGO community, you can do some pretty impactful things. And so we've seen that, you know, with the wildlife, uh, the Wyoming Wildlife Migration in, uh, Initiative, we've seen that with, you know, the Upper Rio Grande Wildlife Initiative that I've been a part of, um, and very other, you know, various other examples across, across the West. But, you know, a lot of my work that I do focus on is how do we how do we affect change through, you know, the best available science, best management practices, but also how do we do that through, you know, working to change and, and affect both, you know, state and federal legislative and administrative policy. And some of the newest opportunities that we do have with, you know, with, like first and foremost, you know, yesterday we saw a significant step in history where, you know, Congresswoman Deb Holland was was confirmed as the Secretary of the Interior. Um, I've had some really, you know, really good interactions and in past work with with Secretary Holland, specifically around sporting issues and specifically around migration corridors and, and habitat connectivity. And it's it's such a good feeling to have such a champion in a position to prioritize these conservation issues that you know, are things that we're passionate about, right? It's really good to have someone who can represent and champion a lot of these issues. Um, but to say that, like these, some of these things aren't perfect, right? There's still a lot of work that we need to do. And both at the, at the legislative and administrative level, there's opportunity to strengthen our ability to manage and protect and enhance and maintain wildlife corridors and habitat connectivity. And we've seen a few of those efforts in the past, try to, try to take charge um, and have ultimately died down and some of them are like 3362 are, are going strong and can be added to and expanded. So for example, 3362 that folk 
you know, in which folks really don't know about or may or may not know about. A little quick background is that's, you know, focused predominantly on 11 Western states to manage to improve big game wintering range for species like elk, mule deer, um, pronghorn. Um, I could be missing a few other species in there as well, but, you know, these are pretty much large ungulates that have pretty wide range seasonal migrations for the most part in, in Western states. And it's a really strong effort. It's a, I think it's a really, a really, it's a really, you know, innovative way to bring states and federal agencies together to prioritize and manage for wildlife corridors. But there are some gaps in there. And there were some, you know, obviously some areas for improvement for, you know, since the creation of 3362, what it didn't do was include tribes. You know, we understand from even a Westwide perspective and just looking at it from a broad scale perspective of just our nation, tribes and tribal lands and sovereign nations have a considerable and significant role to play in managing for our land, water, and wildlife in our country. You know, tribal lands are critical for wildlife migration and, and habitat connectivity. We know, for example, in, in New Mexico, a lot of a lot of the meal, a lot of our northern New Mexico meal deer herd, one of the most prized, you know, trophy meal deer herds that sports sportsmen and women alike apply to, to come hunt every year, will actually summer in public forest service land and migrate onto tribal and BLM land in the winter. And so making sure folks are working together is, is important, but also making sure tribes are, are respected and recognized and included in such processes are also vitally important. So, you know, making sure tribes are included in 3362, but also ensuring that we have bighorn sheep, moose, and also summer range included in that order is, is also important because we've invested a lot of resources in bighorn sheep reintroduction and building up those species and moose also play a very important role in in our country especially in the lower 48 because there's quite frankly there's not a lot of them and so you know understanding how all these work together you know is really how we strengthen this order and how we work with our our partners both at the state and at the federal level to get these kinds of changes made so that our partners our tribes our our state agencies that manage the wildlife have the resources they need to properly do so and you know that's through examples like 3362, there's other efforts like the Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act and Tribal Wildlife Corridors Bill, which focus on just that. How do we bring, how do we identify migration corridors across the West and how do we do so in a way that brings together tribes, private landowners, all these different diverse um, you know, uh, constituents and stakeholders, and how do we do so in a way that really puts wildlife in these issues first. And so these pieces of legislation, these administrative policies. They're all they're existing out there. They're all opportunities with this new administration to put, you know, wildlife first and the landscape first. And I think with initiatives like 30 by 30 with restoration and resilience and a lot of what we're seeing coming from a new administration, you know, a lot of what migration corridors and habitat connectivity represents falls in line with with a lot of these efforts from a new administration so it's, it's a cool position to be in and i think we yeah. have a lot of good opportunity to do some really amazing things yeah i think the take-home message at, at least for me one of the things that's been interesting is you know because states manage wildlife for the most part a lot of the wildlife management has effectively kind of stopped at the border and we know that you know, wildlife, there's plenty of, there's plenty of mule deer in Southern Wyoming that 
that summer in Colorado, and you know, and they come on down, and so there's obviously a gap there that needs to be fulfilled. Same thing in New Mexico and Colorado. There's some critters that cross the border there, Utah and Colorado. Like it just happens, and there hasn't been a good enough. I mean, everybody knows it, but there hasn't been kind of a a promotion of the collaboration and the connection and, and treating those animals as a, you know, as an entity that goes between both places. And I think the, I think the, the biggest thing that's happened with 3362 is it's, it's kind of shined a spotlight and educated people on, Hey, you know, when we see elk, for instance, in the high mountains in the summer, they don't live there all year and, and what's happening between there and when you see them way down, you know, on sagelands in the summer. And if they can't get there, what does that mean? I mean, it's, it's one thing to have two good chunks of habitat, but they're far apart. And if there's no way to get there, well then what does that mean for those critters? Uh, so I, I mean that what, what 3362 has done so far is provide some resources, um, to state agencies to, to better catalog and map. I know, in a lot of the states, they're, they've cranked up their mapping and coloring and understanding where these animals are moving. Um, it's definitely promoted collaboration uh, off of the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies is definitely having sessions on this at, you know, the North American and these other conferences where, they're, where the professionals get together. Um, and we're just learning a lot too, right? You know, I know in Colorado, there's some interesting migrations where Nobody really thought of them as migrations because they're so close, but there might be three, four, five, six thousand feet of elevation change in two miles. And these animals are migrating between those two places, uh, 12,000 feet in the summer down to five or 6,000 feet in the winter. It's not very far because they're coming down steep mountains, but if there's a housing development or a pipeline or a road, a new road that goes through there. Well, then what does that mean for those, for those animals? And so those are the kind of things that are getting a new spotlight. I think uh, we've had a few years now with this secretarial order in place. We, you know, implore the new administration to keep it going, to, to continue to resource it and to, you know, like you said, let's get moose and bighorn in there and think about what they need. Um, you know, we, we all know the West particularly is growing like crazy. We're getting bigger wildfires. We're getting development. We're getting a lot of things that are stressing these animals. And so we need to know and understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And, and then that way we can most appropriately manage uh, them. And, and then the other parts, the educational component, right? Like a lot of people didn't know that this is exactly what happened, especially the non-sporting community, right? Hunters and anglers and lots of the sportsmen and women, they kind of know a lot of this stuff because it's part of being a good hunter. Uh, but, you know, getting other people to understand this, especially with the way development is going, man, the, the housing development, you put a housing development right in the middle of something that, that changes things bad. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a good opportunity for us to kind of point average Joe Jane sports person to, to stay engaged in that, pay attention to that, uh, promote, uh, you know, your local migration areas, right. And, and make sure that when those local land use plans or resource management plans come up, that you're in there and you're saying, Hey, I know this is where the critters go between. We got to be careful with this spot. And, you know, if we're going to do something here, it's got to have strict uh, parameters to make sure that development is, you know, not harming or threatening these, these corridors. So what, you know, what, what else in your work, Jeremy, are you specifically advocating for 
as far as, you know, making these things we just touched on happen. You know, one of, one of the, the things you touched on um, that I can definitely elaborate on more that I've been focusing on is, you know, forest plants, right? And right now, you know, when we talk about 3362 in those efforts, that's predominantly focused on Department of Interior land, right? So BLM, BLM land, you know, private land. Um, that's mostly where that initiative was focused on um, and understanding the importance that summer range, right? When we throw in the word summer range, like that's most likely not going to be on BLM land. That's going to be on higher elevation, public forest service land, right? Managed by the Department of Agriculture. And so making sure Department of Ag, you know, mimics and parallels a similar order like 3362 only ensures that, you know, our wildlife and our landscapes are being prioritized by our, by our federal land managers. And so we're really advocating hard for Department of Ag to, you know, push that initiative and to create something of, of, of similar, you know, magnitude to 3362 that takes that step that says, you know, we as a federal land management agency are prioritizing our, our habitat and the wildlife that utilize it and taking those steps to do so. And, you know, one of the best ways to do that is through the forest planning process right now, you know, in, 20, in 2012, they, they enacted the 2012 planning rule. So basically it told forests across the country to, you know, relook at your forest land management plan for folks that don't know, you know, national forest system and forest service land, you know, the national forest service, the national forest in your backyard is home to a land of multiple uses. And so the forest service has to create a management plan that lasts anywhere from 10 to 15 years. And in that plan, it tells you how, the forest is going to best manage for all of these different uses, right? Wildlife, um, grazing, logging, recreation from trails, wild and scenic rivers, they're all touched on in these, in these plans. And so being that these forests, you know, re redevelop these plants and they last for 10 to 15 years, you know, when they're doing so, it gives you the opportunity to engage and have change that's going to last for you know, 10, 15 years or longer. And so we've really been working through the forest planning process to advocate for kind of two things, and that's forest-wide management prescriptions. So best management practices that make sure wildlife and their habitat looking through the corridor and connectivity lens is prioritized and managed through the longevity of that plan. But then also recognizing where we do have science and data that's showing and illustrating wildlife movement through particular areas, that gives us the opportunity to have place-based protections. And through the forest planning process, we've done those through special management areas. So in New Mexico and Colorado, where just uniquely we have three forests undergoing a forest plan revision process. These are three forests and two regions. And so, you know, we talk about how folks need to be on the same page. It's difficult, right? Even state game agencies that are managing with very similar approaches also have their own unique way of managing for wildlife. And so getting them on the same page can be difficult. Same thing with our federal agencies, right? Making sure that this national force talking to this national force, which is talking to this other national force across the across the you know the border into Colorado, which is managed by a different region. Like those can be difficult, and so making sure that these forests, the Carson, the Santa Fe, and the Rio Grande, that are all undergoing this revision process, are adopting these similar management approaches. So 
given that they are final finalized and included in the final plan, you know, these forests can manage accordingly and consistently across jurisdictional boundaries and then, you know, in turn have some some pretty long-term positive effects for investing money on the ground, right? Like we've seen the Youth Conservation Corps be a big initiative now. How do we find jobs? How do we find areas to do this? Well, you know, looking at restoration and resilience through the eyes of corridors and connectivity, we have areas, place-based opportunities where we can invest resources to promote wildlife habitat, get, you know, people in, in rural areas and, and, uh, and, and different areas, you know, more involved and um, stimulate the economy. So there's a lot of opportunity. Um, that's one of the ways that we've really been, you know, with this, with these new efforts and with the past and new administrations, you know, we've continuously advocated for, you know, the inclusion of such place-based areas in the forest plan revision process, but also those forest-wide management prescriptions. And, you know, the other thing I will, I will add is like, when it comes to managing for connectivity and corridors, it's, it's important to be proactive in having these conversations be, beforehand, because if you don't, you know, the way you see that is, you see that by having no animals on the landscape. You see that by increasing development and habitat fragmentation. That's a much more, we respond to it after the fact. And it's harder to do that when species are declining, species are in peril, landscapes are being altered. You know, if we take those steps to be proactive now and institute those changes, we don't have to try to make up for and then mitigate or restore the effects and you know, by not taking those initial steps to affect, to, to address those issues in the beginning. Yeah. It's interesting how you mentioned some of the nexus between all the different efforts going on right now too. There's, you know, between whether it's like investing in infrastructure, whether it's this 30, 30 effort, whether it's restoration and resilience. I mean, I think there's a cool opportunity right now for hunters and anglers to get pretty engaged and, and, you know, mitigate things like climate change and wildfire and all these things. And at the same time, make hunting and fishing better, take degraded landscapes and get them restored and be part of those. And, you know, our federation, the, the, whether it's New Mexico or Alabama or Michigan or any of these places, we're always engaged in these efforts and we're definitely into investing into these things and promoting the, you know, health and vitality of our landscapes and using that by, you know, or, or doing that by creating jobs and specifically highlighting it and focusing on it as a, as a more of a community value, you know, for everyone, right? Because it, every time you fix landscape, you're, you're helping songbirds, you're helping water quality, you're helping air quality, you're doing all these things that just have kind of exponentially better effects for, for all people and wildlife and we, it's a cool, it's a cool thing. It's a once in a, in a lifetime thing, maybe that we'll get to, you know, both, you know, recover from COVID hopefully and, and do so by, by, you know, enhancing our wildlife and our landscapes and our, you know, our, these places we love to hunt and fish. And that's, that's a, that's a really cool thing. We're excited about it. We're working on it pretty hard. I know you're doing a lot of work and, and we're, we're doing a lot from the sporting lens, trying to figure out exactly what that's going to look like. It's an exciting time. Um, Jeremy, we've been talking for a long time. I think we're going to have to finally say, let's call it off. We could go on forever and ever. Um, there's a lot, lot to talk about, but uh, we'll have you on again in the future uh, after you figure out how to get, get my boy and I a turkey. 
because we need help. <laughs> but uh, I've appreciated talking to you. I, I love your spirit and your the way you the way you just love to get people out and and care about the landscape and you kind of just instill that love for anyone who hangs around you for very long. And uh, I sure feel it when I talk to you. I just love your passion and all the good stuff you're doing. And we're going to connect and get to spend some time together here in the future here soon. So I'm looking forward to that. But anything else you want to want to leave us with before I send you down your way? Well, you know, they're all kind words that you just said. I, I really appreciate that. You know, I, I'm definitely grateful for the opportunity to come on here and, and sit and chat with you. As you as you said, you know, we can take any one of these topics and have a whole hour and a half long podcast just for that. So, you know, getting the opportunity to touch on a little bit of each one has been has been really cool. And again, I, I thank you for that, you know, and, you know, being in a in a really unique position where I get to be you know, passionate and advocate for the things that I, I really care about is, is really cool. And, you know, having good mentors and people like you to be able to lead by example for that is really the reason why I get to get to do this and enjoy doing it. So, you know, I appreciate all the hard work you're doing and continue to do and anything that I can do to continue to help and, and, and help you and your work. Just let me know. Awesome, man. Well, on that note, we'll let everybody go and thanks for joining us. And thanks, Jeremy. See you down the trail, man. Thanks, everyone. Happy turkey hunting. We are NWF Outdoors. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.